say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. From fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada, this is Pod Therapy. Real people, real problems, real therapists. If you have any questions you'd like to ask or advice you'd like to give, come on over to podtherapy.net and join our conversations. In less than a month, Nick will find out what it's like to be homeless. <laughs> this has nothing to do with today's podcast. I just wanted to bitch about real estate in Las Vegas. <laughs> and now, broadcasting from Level 9 Studios, that guy is Dr. Jim Jobin. I'm Nick Tangeman, and it's time for some pod therapy. So this is why you've been pushing that shopping cart to work with all that stuff. <laughs> just getting used to it. Just, just starting to work it out. So what, your lease is up? Uh, lease is up, and we've been looking at renting house oh cool and uh we have looked at several places yeah. and by the time we look at it it's the already rented changed. oh no, wow it's already rented oh wow dang yeah. that's crazy so it's just hard to find a spot yeah oh man yeah the real estate market in las vegas has been insane i know it's which crazy. i'm i'm glad for because like we crashed hard in like 2000 and what nine but uh yeah, sorry, man. But why is that got to be my problem? You can't just renew your lease. You can't go month by month until no, you find be, a place. Well, I could, but yeah. uh, when you you have to put in like a sixty day notice. Oh, right. So then at that point, they're like, okay, and then they start finding somebody to lease it. So for all I know, somebody has already oh no claimed my apartment. So you're up against the gun now. Yeah, this is it. So yeah. July, July is when it's it's over. Uh, no, June like twenty sixth. Just go to a weekly, dude. There's, I mean, you know, you know how to get rid of bed bugs. Well, I don't Just know. Spray Actually, that, spray things down. This place looks nice. Yeah, <laughs> Scott. Can I... Yeah, we can work something. Okay, out with I, Scott. Got the, I got the thumbs up. All right, <laughs> we'll get you a little cot, and you'll be set, We're man. Good. It'll be great. We'll get some bank episodes. It'll level, be fine. Level nine studios. Level nine. My new home. Casa de Nick yeah. <laughs> and slash level nine studios. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm rooting for you, buddy. I hope it works out. And, uh, you know, if not, uh, we, you can just sleep in your office. Why don't you just do that? You have a couch. Well, damn, we're we running a rehab. <laughs> yeah. What are you worried about, man? We've got beds. They live nicer than I do. I'll That's right. Yeah. There. You can get some yoga, massage, executive yeah. chef. You'll be set for a while, man. I've been telling you to bring your damn dogs to the rehab for a long time. So bring the puppies. They'll be recovery puppies. God, that's awesome. See? That's a great idea. You're set. You don't need nothing. Well, my problems are solved. So Let's move on to everybody solved. else's. <laughs> speaking of drugs, speaking <laughs> of rehab, uh, big, huge news, Nick, that has fallen out of the uh, sky of research. And actually, this is something a lot of people have probably heard of, but I, I want to unpack it because a new data piece came out. It's a big deal. So Dr. Dara, uh, Tara Gomes 
has published in JAMA Network Open uh, with St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, Ontario. This new piece of data about American deaths due to the opioid crisis. And the new big headline is that one in every five deaths in young adults in America are due to opioid-related situations. And here's the big quote from the paper. It says that the percentage of deaths attributable to opioids in the U.S. increased by 292% from 2001 to 2016, with one in every 65 deaths related to opioid use by 2016. This number varied by age, group, and sex. Men represented nearly 70% of all opioid deaths in 2016, and the highest burden was among young adults aged 24 to 35. So the big, huge takeaway here, Nick, is that this is now the number one killer of Americans that are under 50, and it is now the case that one in every five deaths for somebody who is under the age of 35 is due to opioids. And so a lot of us, uh, a lot of our listeners have heard the president and heard people talk about the opioid crisis, and they're probably vaguely aware of what that means. But when we see a headline like this, when we see research like this, and we are two guys that work in a rehab and you're an addiction specialist, this is the kind of thing we ought to take a look at and and maybe do some education, teach the, the viewer, teach the listener. Listen, when we talk about this, here's what the hell we're even talking about. But when you see that kind of data, Nick, give me an impression. What, what is that? How does that strike you to see that kind of a number? Uh, it's scary. I mean, because it, um, I mean, if it feels like it's getting worse, it's definitely getting worse. And it's, um, I mean, when it gets to the point where we're talking about death rates and how that now becomes, you know, so popular amongst that the young age group, that like, it's just to think that that's a common way yes. to die at yes. that age. Is insane. Well, you know, here's a, another quote they put in here, which I thought was an interesting way to quantify it. This is uh, Dr. Gomes concluded that a total of 1,681,359 years of life were lost prematurely to opioid related causes in 2016 alone, which exceeds the years of life lost each year from hypertension, HIV, AIDS, and pneumonia in the United States. That was wow. in one year. 1.6 million years of life lost to Americans because of death, premature years lost. So when we talk about this being an epidemic, when we talk about this being a serious crisis, you have to understand that this is what we're talking about. The plague killed one in five humans in Europe. Okay, 20% mm-hmm. of the continent was wiped out by the plague. This is the American plague. One in five people under 35 years old are dying because of this crisis every year. That is insane. Or one in five of all the deaths that happen for that age group. This is a plague. And when we talk about it as an epidemic, that's what we mean. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's unfamiliar to people because they think, well, this isn't something you're born with, right? This isn't like like kidney disease or it isn't like diabetes or it isn't like, you know, some kind of cancer, like a childhood cancer. It's something that you seem to develop. And so a lot of people are unfamiliar with it and they might even, you know, feel like, hey, this is bigger than just a health problem, right? It's also a crime problem. It's also a social problem. It's also a health care problem. It's a health care problem, definitely. Yeah. I mean, in in 2012, there were 94 – opiate prescriptions per 100 people in Nevada. That's insane. So 94 prescriptions per 100 people. Wow. 
94 percent of the population <laughs> there's there's at least one script out there just for them and yeah i mean and so humans, and, and i mean so some people may have had you know two prescriptions right but you it know, all but averages to, but out to think 94 for every there, there's 94 prescriptions out there for every 100 people. That's so let's – here's what we're going to do, folks. Friends of, of this show, we know that you guys are psychology you know, enthusiasts. You want to know about this kind of stuff. And even if you don't personally have this issue or can't relate to it, this is so common now that it's, it's important to your life. Yeah, and that's another thing I was going to say too is that, I mean, within the next five years, everybody is going to have experienced firsthand the yes. death of someone – from opiates. Yes. Somebody on your Facebook is right. going to have an RIP page because of this or as a related consequence of this. Mm-hmm. You're hearing about it all the time. And so, Nick, let's let's plunge into this a little bit. I want to unpack for, for the person who walks up to this podcast and says, listen, I have absolutely zero knowledge about what the hell you guys are talking about. But I've heard the word opioid and I've never used it in a sentence. I have never used it in common kitchen table talk, but I've seen it in headlines and I'm vaguely aware it has something to do with pills or something to that effect. Right. Let's start at ground zero. OK, so okay. Nick, what is an opioid? Okay. So we hear terms like opioids, opiates, which are kind of used synonymously. There's actually a subtle difference in the two. Um, but they're all part of the same problem. Right, they're in all this part case. of the same thing. We so classify them the same. So really we're looking at substances that are either directly uh, derived from the opium poppy, which is going to be like heroin, morphine, things like that, or synthetically synth- uh, created. So uh, hydrocodone, um, you know, all of uh, Percocet, you know, stuff like that, that is um, your, our prescription painkillers. Yes. So when we talk about opiates, we're talking about prescription painkillers. We're also talking about um, heroin. And, and heroin has different types, right? There's black sure. tar heroin. There's, you know, the, the, um, the, what do they call it? The white angel or whatever that is. Mm-hmm. So there's all these different things. So when we talk about opioids or opiates, which again are synonymous, we're talking about a type of substance, right? And when you think about this, I want you to think about it as if it's in a different basket. So there's like the marijuana basket and there's lots of different kinds of cannabis and marijuana. There's the methamphetamine basket. There's amphetamines, which is a different thing, right? And so you know that there's different kinds of baskets and they're usually in uppers and downers. Nick, what kind of drug uh, is an opiate? What These effect are, does it have? Uh, analgesics. Yes. So pain they, relievers. Pain relievers. Right. Now, they don't just take away pain like Tylenol takes pain. You know, Tylenol or ibuprofen is an anti-inflammatory, right? right. So your, your body is uh, inflamed and that's causing pain. Your muscles are tense. So an anti-inflammatory or muscle relaxer takes that away. Opiates work differently. They don't actually decrease the inflammation in the tissue. They mask the actual nerve receptor of the pain. They cover that up in your brain. Right. Yeah. So they're, they, they block the signal, essentially. Yes. That's a good yeah. way to look at it. So it's like a signal interference drug. That's what it essentially right. does. Now, the result of taking this kind of a drug is usually a, a list of side effects like euphoria. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just feel good to have the pain go away. It also induces euphoria throughout your body. So you feel pleasure. You feel good. A lot of people feel very relaxed. They feel tired. An opiate is considered a downer, whereas methamphetamine is going to jack you up. You're usually going to be what we call tweaking. Uh, for several days, running around with your head, you know, flying off the shoulders. Opiates are the other way around. Somebody who's using heroin, which is a very condensed version of an opiate turned into a new form, usually into a powder or a liquid or a powder that's then dissolved into a liquid, 
they can then smoke that powder or they can actually inject that powder into their veins. And this is where you're hearing a lot about the opioid crisis having a lot to do with this image of a junkie. And the junkie image is usually the person with a needle uh, in the bathroom putting a rubber band around their arm and trying to shoot up. And you've heard a lot about that too. That's usually where it leads because one of the other interesting side effects of an opiate is that your body quickly builds a tolerance. And then what happens, Nick, whenever you stop taking the opiate? Well, then you go into withdrawal. Yes. Right. Your body starts to, you know, it it expects that to be there. And then uh, whatever the effect was that you were getting from using the substance, you have the opposite effect when you go into withdrawal. Yes. It's very acute. And that's the thing, folks, whenever you hear about this being an epidemic and you're wondering, how the hell can this thing be this problematic? I mean, it's killing people. Why the hell are they reaching for it? What you don't understand is that with a lot of drugs, like with marijuana, if you smoke marijuana and then you smoke a lot of it and then you stop smoking it, you will have a withdrawal effect. It's just not going to kill you. It doesn't feel like death. It's uncomfortable. You're going to be irritable. You're irritable. You're going to be unable to sleep. You're going to feel a little bit of agitation. Decreased appetite. Heroin is as close – withdrawal from heroin is as close as you can come to death without dying. That's the way I want you to think about it. The only drug that I think you can die from when you're withdrawing is alcohol, and that's only because it's possible for you to go into a seizure. And benzos. And benzos, which for the same reason. Yeah, for the exact same reason. Heroin, you feel like death. Death would be a relief. Yeah. from heroin. That's usually how I describe it to people. You're you're probably not going to die, but you're going to want to. Yeah, there's I think of the scene in Aladdin where the genie tells Aladdin, uh, "Genies can't kill people, but you'd be surprised what you can live through." That's <laughs> heroin, okay? Like coming off of heroin can't kill you, but it is so agonizing, so horrific. Your bones hurt. Your skin hurts. You are in agony, pain. Your stomach is on fire. You're in cramps. You're in such physical agony that you can't eat. You can't sleep. You can't stand. You're vomiting. You have diarrhea. And this lasts for three, four, five days. And what typically happens is this is so hard to come off of, which we refer to as kicking. It's so hard to come off of that you don't. You try and you think, okay, I'm just going to bite on a rag and get through this agony. It is that hard that your survival instincts kick in. And you will actually go find more. The other, the other important thing to note here too is that it's not that you're going to go into withdrawal symptoms if you simply stop using. You can go into withdrawal symptoms when you cut down. Or when you stay at the same amount right? because you start needing more. Right. Yeah. So I, I once had a, a client who was actually a physician and he was kind of uh, having his friends write scripts for him and, and uh, his – habit got up to he was taking 22 hydrocodone twice a day jeez 22 pills at one time right doing that twice a day and it got to a point where he said if he took 21 he would start experiencing withdrawal symptoms and this folks i hope you just heard that okay perk your ears up highlight that last sentence here's the the magic problem about the opiate compared to other drugs it is agony absolute physical mental anguish whenever you don't have enough of it in your system or it starts to uh, wane away. And, and if you try to stop altogether, it's absolute agony. Your survival skills kick in. You will go find more. But it keeps building up. That doctor gets up to 21 pills. Then he needs 22. Then he needs 23. And it, it happens rapidly. And this is why people ultimately graduate, we call it, to heroin. Heroin is right. one-third the cost of the pills. Mm-hmm. And it's two, it's two to three times more effective. It lasts longer. You need less of it to get by. 
And getting by is the central concept. These people are not at some point using this stuff because they want to. Yes, they're addicted to it, but it's an addiction in the sense that it's no longer pleasurable. There's brief amounts of euphoria and mostly a running away from the agony of withdrawal. Right. And so we can easily see how the transition would would go because I've I've worked with a lot of people who um, haven't progressed to the point where they're using uh, we'll call street drugs like heroin, heroin you know, smoking or it or shooting it. Right. You know, but they'll say, well, you know, these are prescribed. Right. You know, but as they continue to abuse that medication and they need more and more, everybody has a financial limit. Yes. Of what they can afford. Right. And when you when you are hurting and you're in agony and we've got so many um, hoops you have to jump through now to get the uh, right. the opiates, uh, the pain prescription painkillers, which is a good thing. But then it leads to I, I have to fulfill this need somehow. So how do they and do it? Heroin. In, it, it's, heroin is usually another step, also drug diversion. And what that means in our industry is you get the pills illegally. You, you mm-hmm. find somebody else who went to the dentist and got them or you doctor shop and that means you go to a new doctor and you know try to use your husband's insurance or whatever. You tell him to go in there and fake knee pain. And that's part of the, the, the fascinating reality of the opiate crisis is when we talk about one in five young people are dying from it, we don't just mean it's a young people problem. Okay, I've had patients that are, just as Nick pointed out, are physicians. I've had patients that are dentists. I've had patients that are in their 50s and 60s. They have chronic pain, and they're given this magic pill that does work. It's very effective, but it comes with a price. It's like a devil's bargain Mm -hmm. because basically, even though it takes away the pain, it's very effective at that. It was designed for cancer pain. It was designed for people that have acute terminal cancer. This is the way you go out. Mm -hmm. This way you can have pain-free death. That's essentially what it was for. Yeah, because it, it didn't matter. It didn't matter if it was addictive. Who cares? You're at right. the end of your life. Right. So it, the, the pros outweigh the cons. But then it started getting marketed as a cure-all. Hey, this will beat the crap out of Tylenol and ibuprofen. This takes away the pain. And it was marketed to physicians as the, the most ethical thing you can do for your patient is take away their pain. But then we started realizing this stuff makes you non-functional. You start needing to chase it. You need more of these stupid things just to get by. Well, and then there's also the effect of uh, opioid-induced hyperalgesia, which – Right. Unpack that. Yeah. So essentially what that means is that with long-term use of opiates, it actually makes your pain receptors more sensitive. Yes. So things that weren't painful in the past now because you've been using so many opiates become – painful. You know, whenever you're sick and you feel those body aches and you feel like your skin just hurts, you know, you feel really achy, your joints hurt, you're very sensitive and you wrap yourself usually in blankets and sweaters and you just try to like insulate yourself from the world. That's what it feels like to even be on opiates when they're working because if opiates are working, they start to numb out your pain, but then your pain receptors grow bigger and make more because they're sensing that they're not working. So your body responds to the turning off that the opiate does and makes it more sensitive. And And so then whenever you don't have the opiate in your system, A, you're in absolute physical and emotional agony because of the lack of the opiate in your system. And B, your own body is betraying you because now it has become hypersensitive to the world. And so, guys, it's a perfect storm. And then on top of that, it doesn't matter if you're 15 or 50. The, the pain is real. The pain is is driving you away and, and toward these things. So you go get more of these pills or you get a higher dose or you go get them illicitly or you go divert them. 
if you need to, you go to heroin. And we think heroin, oh, that's for filthy people. Heroin is economics, folks. It's one-third the price, two to three times more effective. All the heroin users I know tell me, dude, I did that out of pure market knowledge. Like that was not me being nefarious. It was me being ethical and intelligent, right? Mm -hmm. So they start smoking heroin. That doesn't work after a while. So they start shooting heroin. And this is where we get to opiate-related deaths. Opiates will suppress your respiratory system and your heart rate. It's a downer, right? Well, it's a very acute and powerful one. It's enough to actually shut your system off. And that's what essentially overdose is. Once you're putting this into your body at such high doses, which you have to work your way up to, your body has the risk every single time you use it of just turning off. And we call that an overdose where you just die, right? Well, another thing that started happening was the market started becoming flooded with a new substance called fentanyl. Hmm. Fentanyl makes heroin look like dishwater. Right. Way more powerful. And you think, well, God, why would anybody use that? Because it's a never-ending climb. Just like you graduated from the first pill to two pills, you graduate from heroin to fentanyl. And then eventually they start using fentanyl. They have no choice. Once you've tasted fentanyl, there is no going back. It's a devil's bargain. It solves the problem. But now it's a new problem because the bar has been raised. A lot. Now fentanyl will kill you. Every time you take it, it's a shot in the dark, you're going to die. But what happens is maybe you go to a detox. You're getting sick. You're absolutely lousy. Your, your life's falling apart. You're having to use this dope all day, every day, every waking moment, every dollar in your account goes to getting more of this. It is a survival uh, uh, carousel that you can never get off of. If you go get detox at a rehab like ours, what happens is your body readjusts. It goes back down to kind of like a zero. Mm. Well, then whenever you relapse, you don't go back to one pill. You go back where you left off. You go back where you left off. And that's why people die. Because that same tolerance that forced you all the way up to the heaviest amount of weight. Think of a bodybuilder whose body has gotten so strong that he can lift a freaking truck. You know, you could hit him with a truck and you'd leave a dent in the truck and the guy would walk away. Now imagine that you could like take his entire body mass and shrink it back down to a normal man. Then you hit him with a truck. He says, hit me with the truck. That's what I'm used to. And you're like, no, dude, this will kill you. And it will. And that's essentially what happens when these folks overdose because they're still stuck on it. You might think, well, Jim, hold on. They, they got clean, right? They got medically detoxed. Why would they still need this medicine or why would they still seek the, the heroin? And this comes back to the concept of addiction and why it's complicated. It's not just the physical craving. It's also the mental side of it as well. Yeah. I mean there's, there's a couple different ways of looking at this. There's um, what's called the uh, – we'll talk about the mental behavioral impaired control cycle. So um, – there's going to be a test later, so I hope you're all taking notes. <laughs> yeah, this is all vocab. <laughs> I'll, I'll simplify this. Essentially, it kind of goes back to what we know with um, operant conditioning. Yes. Right? So, uh, operant so think Pavlov's dogs. No, that's classical conditioning. Classical conditioning. Operant is B.F. Skinner. Oh, okay, Skinner. Right? Yeah. Yep. So if a behavior is rewarded, it's more likely for the behavior to continue. If right. a behavior is punished, that makes it less likely for the behavior to continue. Right. Right. So for – it's almost amazing the link between trauma and addiction. Right. And so we work with so many people f that have been dealing with trauma since childhood or for you know long period of time, and they find themselves addicted to substances. Well, why does that happen? Well, because those substances produce an escape, right? So I'm dealing with all of these issues from childhood, the death of someone close to me or um, – PTSD from violence I, I experienced or was exposed to. And that use provides a relief. temporary relief. Mm -hmm. So that behavior 
is reinforced. Right. It's it's being rewarded. So now I experience the consequences of that use and I have more stress. Right. So how did I deal with stress last time? Right. I use, I get that temporary relief and it becomes a never-ending cycle. You're just you're chasing your tail. And this is different than physical withdrawal. This yes. is different than physical craving. This is the emotional and psychological uh, connection to the drug. Right. And this is why when we treat somebody at a rehab, it's all the above. That's why you're going to find doctors and nurses and therapists and counselors and yoga and meditation and, and nutrition and dietitians and all of it because it's a whole person disease. It's very hard to deal with. And mm-hmm. even if they are, they're successful, the relapse rate is still very high because it's out there. It's in the world and they don't know how to live their life. Well, without and, this stuff, and also looking at uh, the age of onset, when did they start using? Right, you know, because those those adolescent years and early adult years are very important in how we develop coping skills. Yes. So for the average child, um, they've got a problem, they f- they cope with it. Right. So now they've developed a coping skill. Now problem number two comes along. So we try coping skill number one, and that doesn't work. So we create a new one. Right. And then now. Problem three. So mm-hmm. we try the first two coping skills. They don't work. So we develop the third. So we can see how we develop coping skills based off of our coping skills not working every time. Yes. This is the problem with substances is that it's not that they don't work. It's that they work so well that the person does not develop any alternative coping skills. They only have plan A. Right. So when we have somebody who's in their 30s and they have been you Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once actually do i have to say yes you do in the car before my kids pta meeting really yes excuse me what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky i never win and tell well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Since they were 14, we put them into our program. The very first thing we do is we remove their primary coping skill. Right. And now we find out that they have the coping skills of a 14-year-old. Yes. Because they never had to develop any other coping skills. And we actually refer to that as emotional age. And so one of the first things we're interested in whenever you come into rehab is we're trying to figure out when you started using because we pass that information along to all the other therapists and nurses. So we know when we're talking to you, we're talking to a 13-year-old, even though you look like a 50-year-old. We have to figure that out. Right, and you may be worldly, worldly intelligence, yeah. experience. Doesn't matter that. how many degrees you have, but at the end of the day, it's it, going back to those coping skills and kind of where you you're have at the emotional, emotional resilience of that age. So when we think about this as an epidemic, folks, what we've hopefully done just now is educated you. What the hell are we even talking about? What is this drug? Why is it unique? Why is it different than other drugs? Why has it been uniquely devilish in trying to solve? And part of it's because we're fighting on every front. We're fighting the pharmaceutical industry, who was all too happy to pour this into our system. 
systems and uh, try to sell this everywhere they possibly could. In other countries, did you know it's illegal to market a pharmaceutical drug directly to an audience? There is no commercial during the football game where they go, hi, try Profexa. Profexa. And there's like people happy in the background, you know, holding hands next to a lake. You know, try Cialis. It'll be good for your side effects may include instant death. You know, like that's illegal in other countries. But that happens here. And right. for like 30 years, the opiates were number one. Yeah. And I think it's important to, you know, talk about this in other countries because this does not seem to be a world phenomenon. This no. seems to be a U.S. thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the United States population consists of 4% of the entire world population. Right. And we consume over 80% of the world opiate supply. Right. It's all here. That's, yeah. It's insane. And even though it's grown in Afghanistan, you know, but it gets it's shipped here. So, guys, I hope that you feel educated about it. I hope you feel like you understand it. When we talk about one in five young people under 35 now dying from this, we're talking about the plague. Okay, this is the most significant thing, the most significant health crisis that could ever happen in our country. So significant. The American Surgeon General just wrote an entire report about it. The last time a report came out from the Surgeon General, it was about tobacco. And you know how the world changed when we all started attacking tobacco. They got sued for billions of dollars. It funded scholarships and and health plans in every single state. And that Mm -hmm. entire industry fell apart. Now everybody's vaping. So that's the attack plan that we're on. And people ask, well, how do you fix this? Do you make them illegal? No, because they're already out there, right? When somebody's in pain, you just take away this stuff. It's not necessarily ethical to do that. It takes an all-of-the-above solution, which is what rehabs are. But then you hear John Oliver get on there and complain about rehabs because they're springing up all over the place to try to address this problem, and they're not always well-equipped to deal with it. They're not always professionalized. We're trying our best. Now, our program is fortunate in the sense that we're highly licensed, we have the best of the best, and we don't have to run the same risks as our competitors. But I also feel for them. A lot of our competitors that are trying their very best but aren't equipped for the problem, it's because the problem is so outrageously big nobody's equipped for the problem. And we're all just like throwing stones at a tank and trying to slow it down. I think educating the public is going to play a big role in how to fix this problem as well, or at least how to address the problem. You know, because, you know, kind of going back to your point earlier, there's a difference between acute pain and chronic pain. Right. And people have the idea, the, the this expectation that opiates should be used to treat any pain. Right. And that's not true. Right. Opiates can be effective for acute pain. Right. You just had shoulder surgery or something. Morphine. Boom. And yeah. So you're going to need that for a couple of days, help you get through it. Chronic pain, you have to ask what's, what is the end goal? Right. What, because if you get into the idea that we're going to prescribe this medication so that you're going to be pain free the rest of your life, well, it's going to be a short life it's because short we're going life. to have to continue upping the dose. It's just not it's possible. In, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's an all the above solution, man. It, it comes with education, it comes with treatment, it comes with psychology, it comes with medicine, it comes with government support, it comes with government funding, it comes with healthcare insurances paying the bills so that people's lives can be changed and live and understanding it's an expensive venture to save lives, but this is the freaking American plague and you're going to have to finance it. it. It's a lot of things, folks, but I hope that you feel educated today. I hope you feel like you had a better, more honest, more transparent, more clear and easily understood treatment of this issue than perhaps you've ever bumped into before. But um, horrifying data, horrifying data, but something we have to take very seriously. And um, hopefully our listeners are part of the solution, not part of the problem. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how to handle insecurity when you feel like your partner is better looking than you. Um, I'll tell you all about it. Jim's going to tune in a lot on this one. (laughs) All right, uh, we'll be right back. 
We're back. You're listening to Pod Therapy, and we're jumping into our advice. And this question is unlike anything I've ever seen. Very excited to read it. It's got a few words on here, but every single word adds more context, and I want to uh, unpack it. It's pretty good. All right, here's what it's titled. Average-looking wife, a very handsome husband. It just gets more difficult every year. I'm 43. He's 44. We've been together 21 years and married for 18. Since literally the first night we met, people have commented on how hot he is and how weird or unlikely it is that he's with me or how lucky I am. He's been approached by modeling agents and has intermittently had at least one other woman chasing after him for decades. I'm not ugly. I guess when we first met, I was a six or a seven, to put it in crass terms, with a very nice figure. But I've never been into clothes, makeup, or drawing attention to myself. And no one has ever said, damn, about me like they do (laughs) him. I like books, my garden, and spending time with close friends. I wear jeans and t-shirts. I don't color my hair or paint my nails. And I'm usually the one who unclogs a pipe or replaces an electric fixture around the house. I love my job. We have a pretty egalitarian marriage in terms of income and labor, but less attractive guys I dated before him made me feel more physically valued, more like they were also lucky to have me. I have a high sex drive and often felt frustrated during the first 10 to 12 years of our marriage, during which we had two kids, because he frequently indulged in pornography more often than we had sex. It hurt my feelings and made me feel inadequate. Eventually, we discussed how hurtful this was for me, and he recognized that was a way he was avoiding intimacy. He is generous in bed, and when we do have sex, it's always been very satisfying. Became more so after we discussed the porn issue. However, I have always felt that my appearance is somewhat disappointing to him, and that he's compromising or doing me a favor in the physical attraction department. All of these years together, I know he loves me. We are dear friends, and we've built a wonderful family. But I can't get over the feeling that I'll always be his comfy old pair of stretched-out sweatpants and never the sharp new outgoing suit, so to speak. Until about two years ago, I was the same weight as when we got married, but post-40, I, like many humans, have experienced some middle-aged spread and gray hairs, while he seems not to have aged at all. Recently, we always seem to be asked, is this together or separate when we're at stores or restaurants? Which, since it never used to happen, makes me think, what the F? Is it really so implausible that we're a couple? I think if I were the man and he were the woman, the dynamic would be totally different. But it's really painful for me. Now, he is having some intermittent issues with impotence, which is also totally normal for a man in his mid-40s, but I can't stop feeling like it's my fault. Like he'd be raring to go if only I were pretty enough or 10 years younger. I fantasize about having an average-looking lover who'd just be super into it. Everyone has things about their spouse that are not their ideal, of course. I wish he would read more so that we could talk about books and remember to turn over the compost pile. It doesn't bother me at all to think he wishes I didn't forget clothes in the washer until they smell mildewy. So why does this one thing, my average appearance make me feel so terrible about falling short. It's making me draw away from him and want to be alone. Although he swears he thinks I'm still cute and doesn't think about that. How do I get over this negative feeling? Yeah, that's a tough situation. I feel like we've had a similar write-in before. We've had ones about pornography. No, no, about like uh, differences in 
physical uh, attraction. Physical attraction, yeah. interrelationship. Not one with this level. So we've no. had it where they were dating for like two weeks yeah. and the person felt right. insecure. Yes, that's These the guys have been of. married for 20 – or they've been together for 21 years, married for 18 right. years. They have two kids and, I think, and it's still her feeling. Yeah, and I – here's what I would do uh, you know, to, to the listener if um, – if you were my client and we were, you know, in therapy, one of the first things I would want to explore is I'd want to explore your belief system and looking for any kind of distorted thinking patterns because it kind of goes back to something that we've talked about on this show quite a bit, which is confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. It's that distorted way of looking at things when 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 we believe something we always look to prove ourselves right, not wrong. Right. We never intend to prove ourselves wrong. So this can create this snowball effect of identifying all of these things that are happening or that we perceive are happening, whether they're happening or not. So if it started off right away in the very beginning that you felt like you were the less attractive one in the relationship – and you felt like he was more attractive and that had some insecurity with it, thinking that he could leave at any moment to find somebody else. If that's the starting point and that thought process is never challenged, what what likely is going to happen? We're going to continue to look for things, right? There could be nine things that happen that disprove this. But if one thing happens that confirms it, that's the one we remember, we, we, we don't even acknowledge the rest. So, you know, the things with, you know, asking, for example, you go to a restaurant, the example that you gave, um, they're asking, is this together or separate? Okay. It, it could, you could be right. This could have something to do with your appearance and the perception of mismatch that you two don't belong together. But are you 100% sure that that's actually the case? Could there be some confirmation bias could this honestly be just a waitress asking an innocent question but because of your insecurity of this issue you are more sensitive to it and you read into this more than what it might actually be yeah you know and and to piggyback on that as well um another thing that that i want to look at is so let's say you're right you know let's let's take it that way there was a study that was done where we took a i I didn't do this but this was science did and i'll speak on behalf of science uh they did this thing where they took 10 men and 10 women and and they sort of had them uh ranked right according to physical attractions based on surveys and each one of them did not know what their number was it was one through ten and they were each remember this one and they were wearing the number on their forehead (laughs) and and so they had to walk uh from one side to the other there was a line of men on one end of the room and line of women on the other and they had to walk without speaking and pair up with another person they had to pair up with somebody of the opposite sex and so they all know what the numbers represent and it was fascinating because the women tended to swarm the 10 because they want their women tend to have this this uh mentality that you leverage your looks for value right so they believe themselves to be higher than they really are and they're pursuing the 10 guy you know to try to get him and the guys didn't care <laughs> like the guys didn't like they they just didn't really look at the numbers so much as they like looked at the girl and if they seemed interested in the guy he was interested in her <laughs> and so it's a fascinating takeaway that the way that we pair up we tend to match that is a thing there is such a thing as social matching so i understand this writer's you know confusion and saying, hey, I've never felt like I'm completely matched. But the other thing I want to point you toward is this concept of needs. So when we're talking about needs, 
uh, we tend to – there's this theory called uh, His Needs, Her Needs. It's a really good book by Dr. Harley. And in His Needs, Her Needs – I was just talking to a client about this today. Uh, we tend to look at female needs versus male needs and they – you know, we all have the same needs at some point. But they might come away you know, a little bit more distinguished in certain patterns. The pattern that we notice among men is that we tend to notice about five needs and there's also five women needs, which we can get into later if we need to. But the, the needs are basically this. I'm going to rattle them off for you really quick. So – and this is in no particular order. Um, the first one, just in no particular order, is sexual fulfillment, OK? And so that's actual like sexual engagement, enjoying your sexy time together, right? Number two, affirmation. Do you make a man feel admired? Does he feel like he's valuable when he's in your presence? Is that a good experience for him? Uh, another one is domestic support. Does he feel like, you know, when he's in your presence, is that a sanctuary? Does it feel safe? Do you make a house a home? That kind of thing. Another one is attractive spouse, you know, and, uh, you know, feeling like your mate is actually appearance-wise uh, appeasing to you and you like that. And another one, the last one, is recreational companionship. And that just means do you play together? Do you have uh, a sense of enjoyment of friendship together? Men tend to need that. Now, I've just listed off five things. Only one of those was attractive. Attractiveness. Any given man might prioritize those five things in a different order. It could just be that – and I'm buying what you're selling here. I mean Nick's challenging your thinking and saying, hey, are you sure that maybe the, the appearance differentials is wide as you think? I'll come alongside you and say, OK, maybe it is. But what you're not giving credit to is your husband – may not have that as the most important value in his life. It may be recreational companionship. He may value affirmation. He may value domestic support. He may value sex, uh, sexual fulfillment. He may value the friendship aspect. He may value the intimacy that you guys have. He doesn't necessarily have to be attracted to your physical appearance first and foremost. So the fact that it's an issue for you doesn't necessarily mean it's an issue for him. And I point to exhibit A, 21 years together, to probably make the argument for him that whatever you guys are doing, it's working. It seems to be working. It seems to be working. And, you know, I would argue that now you're in your midlife crisis age, right? You're coming into your 40s. Now you're feeling insecure about your looks. Guess what? That's how we all feel. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I'm in my early 30s and I'm like, ah, like looking in the mirror like my pores are huge. Like I found a gray hair on my side the other day and I was like taking pictures of it and like trying to make sure there was only one. Like we're all going through this all the time. And if you're in your mid 40s, this is exactly when you're due for that kind of thinking anyway. It's probably just exacerbated because you said your husband still looks really good, which also Nikki could be a vampire because she says he doesn't age. I have met guys like that. Not vampires. Okay. That you know people. of. You don't know. You're right. Yeah, You're right. I could be wrong. Rule it out. But um, sooner or later, age will always catch up. <laughs> yeah. But also, I think a lot of women feel like this, Nick, because I've heard a lot of women say, regardless if they feel like their man is more attractive than they are, if we're looking at the full time scale of men versus women attractiveness, and we've seen studies like this too, women's sexual peak, so to speak, of, of when they you know, seem to be you know, Darwinian evolution-wise the most attractive would be 20s to early 30s. Generally speaking, that's what we see. Men, on the other hand, tend to ripen with age, so to speak. Right. A lot of times women say, I find men more attractive when they're in their 30s and their 40s. They're, they're more attractive than they were when they were teenagers. And mm -hmm. girls tend to date older guys. You know, there, there's that stereotype that that tends to happen. Mm -hmm. And so whenever you and your spouse have been together for 21 years and now you're both in your 40s, He's coming into a golden era. And sure. You're probably leaving yours. And that can exacerbate that feeling of insecurity. But that doesn't mean it's real. Right. And the other thing, too, I'd, I'd touch on also just real quick is, uh, you know, the comment that you made about, um, you know, fantasizing about having an affair and, 
um, that's not going to solve the problem. No. This is definitely, you know, this, I would really encourage you to, you know, maybe get into therapy, talk to somebody about this. Um, Having an affair is not going to make things any better. Um, Because, you know, looking at it from the guy's perspective, I mean, if he obviously is in love with you, he's still, he's still in this relationship. It sounds like everything's going well for the most part. Um, yeah, that's, that's only going to make things more complicated. And you know, another thing that's interesting about this too, Nick, I have seen a study which has indicated that men's sexual peak when their drive is the highest is, I think it was like, uh, 16 to 26 years old and women's sexual peak was something like. 35 to 45 and it was like again another faustian bargain here that somehow these two like tribes never will find each other at the right time but this could be evidence of that this could be Mm -hmm. him his sex drive naturally declining and her sex drive naturally starting to escalate and now the two ships are passing in the night and she's saying is it me and no, it's not you. And well, will another man make me feel more wanted? Perhaps, but you're trading an awful lot to get that. And this is where a therapist is going to walk you through all this to figure out what are feelings and what are facts. Mm-hmm. All right. You're listening to Pod Therapy. We're going to take a short break. And when we get back, we talk about stage five clingers. And we're back, and you're listening to Pod Therapy. Our next write-in uh, title, How Do I Tell My Clingy Girlfriend to Be Less Clingy? Yeah, you just did it. All right. Uh, <laughs> Problem solved. Thank you very much. Thanks for writing in. <laughs> Long story short, my girlfriend is very clingy, and I don't really have any alone time or time with friends anymore. I love her very much, and I love spending time with her. But it's to the point where she will take it personal if I want to hang out with others or without her. I know if I bring it up, it will probably get into a very big argument, which I'm trying to avoid. Is there any advice on how to talk to her or help the situation improve anyway? I feel like I'm losing my friends, but I don't want to lose this relationship either. I think a lot of people relate to this. And Mm -hmm. so like when I heard this question, the first thing I thought was that word codependent. You know, perhaps the girlfriend in the story is struggling with that and maybe feels like unsafe or wants this person around. Maybe she feels insecure, like, oh, if he's not with me, then other people matter more than me. Um, gosh, Nick, that's a hard one, though. Have you ever had a stage five clinger relationship? Yeah. And I, I think there's I've, I've noticed two. <laughs> why are you pointing at me? I feel like, you know, you know why. OK. Now, I feel like there's two reasons why this happens. I think number one is sometimes insecurity that you feel like if they're not with me, what's going on? Right. The other one, I think sometimes just has to do with expectations of what a relationship is. Mm. Um, depending on what this, what her past relationships have been like, if her past relationships have been very codependent and this is the idea that she has, like this is what, what a relationship looks like. We're also looking at her parents. Mm. You know, we learn about relationships by watching relationships. That's the first one we ever see. So my parents never had friends outside of themselves. They did everything together. They were always together every night. Okay. So now that sets the tone for your expectations of a relationship. So my advice to you would be to actually just sit down and have a conversation about what are the expectations? You know, what, what kind of independence do you expect in a relationship? And and, uh, you know, when are those breaks that we can have and still have a healthy, you know, partnership? 
Yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, what I don't see in this uh, explanation is I don't see her reaction, which is very telling to me. That That's something I'd like to know more about. If you try to hang out with your friends and she's blowing up your phone the whole time texting you and there's a tone of insecurity or jealousy or fear, that's important to me, right? That's important data because that might change the way that I want you to interact with her. In this case, we're going to assume the best. We're going to assume that she's just clingy and like she just constantly wants to be with you. And if you say, oh, I'm meeting my buddy to do a podcast, she probably says, can I come too? You know, like, okay, like. <laughs> Like, and there's not insecurity hey, there. Oh, that's right. Laura came. <laughs> that was not in my head at all. <laughs> I just was, I was trying to go with something random. <laughs> Laura, you clinger. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> that's really funny. But no, like it, it, that would change everything that she might not be insecure. So I agree with Nick. I think that having an honest conversation about your needs and saying, listen, I, I love this relationship. This relationship is nourishing to me. It is exactly good. And I'm, I'm a human being that needs to have complex relationships and I want to have a relationship with a friend and I want to have a relationship with a hobby and, and things that I do. Can we budget time for that where it's kind of me time? Yeah, and I think one other thing that might be helpful too is make plans. So if you're going to go out and spend time with friends, sometimes making a plan of and then tomorrow what we are going to do together yes. might help decrease some of the some of the anxiety. Yeah, and getting ahead of it, I think that anytime you can kind of prepare your mate and say, listen, um, on Wednesday, I'm going out with my friend. We're going to go see a movie. On thir- but as Nick said, and on Thursday, you know, I was hoping we can go to dinner together. Are you cool with that? I think that's a really good way to do it. But um, definitely confront your stage five clinger and uh, good luck prying them off of the bark of your boat or whatever analogy I'm trying to use. Is that it's a barnacle? It's a barnacle. They cling, don't yeah, they? Yeah, boats don't have bark. Okay. They dig in like a tick, Nick. You got to get rid of them. It's, <laughs> I don't know. But don't don't dig her. Stay out. away from the uh, boat metaphors. Don't, don't kill your girlfriend. That's what I'm going for. Here. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that was something he was considering. But that's always good <laughs> Not, advice. But now that idea is out there. That's, you put that out there. That's why people tune into pod therapy to get great <laughs> advice like that. Yeah. What'd you learn this week? Don't kill your girlfriend. <laughs> Okay, that's all the time that we've got for this week's session. Thank you to those who contributed to our show today. We really appreciate it. Remember, pod therapy isn't something you should keep all to yourself. Help us reach others by sharing this episode. You can find us at facebook.com slash pod therapy or on Twitter at pod therapy guys. Do you want to add your own advice to today's questions? Post your thoughts at podtherapy.net and join the conversation. I'm Nick Tangeman. I'm Jim Jobin. Thanks, and we'll see you for your appointment next week. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.